Luke 16. So we're going to look at the whole chapter today, and it is a difficult chapter. It's one of these chapters that, that we look at and we think, okay, what is Jesus trying to say? And we think, why did he say it this way? The good news is, is that when we look at it as a whole, we don't separate these things too much, but we see it as its own context, in its context, we realize that Jesus is talking about the intersection of two important things, money and relationships. How do these things work together? And if you have any relationships, you know that sometimes money causes friction in those relationships. It's just a part of life. And so Jesus talking about this is something that's incredibly practical for us today. And so I really do hope as we're looking at this stuff that we are inspired practically about how we can deal with this intersection. But I also want to caution you as we're looking at this because there's a chance, this is such a a, a difficult thing to deal with. It's such a cutting uh, part of the sword. You might say this is a really sharp end of the sword of the Spirit that it's easy for us to be overwhelmed by its challenge. I I confess I was overwhelmed by the challenge this week in in preparing this, especially looking at it last yesterday afternoon and early this morning and wrestling through these things and saying, Lord, I, I, I fall so short of this. I'm really exposed by what you're saying here about where these two things intersect. But also, in this, this week specifically, it's tempting to look at these things and politicize them. It's tempting for us to say, okay, yeah, that's why I voted this way and didn't vote that way. And, and, and to be honest, I've heard both sides, if there's, as if there's only two sides, but I've heard kind of both sides of the debate kind of use the words of Jesus to justify their political position. And I'm relatively comfortable that Jesus did not intend this to be politicized. In fact, the context itself makes it clear he wants us to not politicize this, but personalize this. That we think about how do I respond to what he's saying here? What do, how do I see Jesus? How do I see his words on this issue? I also want to make it clear that this is not a message that is intended to get you to tithe more. That's not our intention whatsoever. I don't even think that's the the intention of the text at all. This is about us recognizing two things that are difficult for us to, to put together that in Christ, he calls us, if we're going to follow Jesus, he calls us to put these two things together. So let's read. start by reading the first uh, uh, 12 verses of Luke 16. Jesus also said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be a steward. Then the steward said within himself, what shall I do? For my master has taken away uh, the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him, and he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, write 50. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? 
And so he said, 100 measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill, write 80. So the master commended the unjust steward because he dealt, dealt shrewdly for, uh, for the sons, he dealt shrewdly for the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves uh, by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least uh, is faithful also in much. He who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your, your, your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? So now Jesus tells this parable, the parable of the unjust steward. And if we're going to understand this parable, we've got to make sure we understand what a steward is. A steward was someone who, in a rich man's house, he would, ha- he would appoint a servant to kind of be over all the goods in his house. And so when we, think about, uh, when we think about money today, we think about sort of we know that there's a certain value in our bank and that we have debits that come out of that account to pay for bills and so on and so forth. But then, of course, they would just barter with goods. And so they would literally have a storehouse full of oil, full of wheat, full of cured meats and, 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 and other supplies. And these were how they would receive payment for things and give payment for things. There was such a thing as coin for taxes and such, but mostly they dealt with resource. So the steward of a rich man's house had the responsibility over all those resources. And in fact, he had the authority to use those resources in the name of his master. He was even given his master's signet ring. You guys know what that is? It's a ring with a family seal so that when there was a bill to be written, like saying, okay, like when he says here, hey, quick, write 100, then what would happen is that person would say, I owe so-and-so now only 50, and he would take that ring and seal it with wax, saying that in authority of the master, this is all that he's owed. And that was legally binding. So once that was done, there was no turning back. So we read this, and we might be thinking in our modern you know, a way of thinking we might go, well, it's obvious the guy's a thief. How, how does he get away with this? But he does because he has that signet ring. This is why his master commends him, thinking that was pretty clever. He got away with something pretty clever. And so this is what a steward is. Now what's interesting, though, is what the steward does is he actually is embezzling money from his master, and when he's caught out, you've been bad with your money, or bad with your master's money, I should say, what does he do? He thinks, oh no, what's going to happen to me? I I, I can't be a steward anymore. What's my future going to look like? So what does he do? He embezzles more. (laughs) He goes and he gets these guys that owe his master money to say, okay, I'll I'll tell you what, we'll we'll give you a huge discount on this so that these guys like him and uh, accept him into their home later on. And again, we're kind of puzzled. So why is the master commending him? And more so, why would Jesus use this in the positive? Now, first and foremost, verse 4 kind of tells us why he's doing this. He says clearly, I know what I'm going to do. I've resolved uh, 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 what I'm going to do so that when I'm put out of stewardship, they may receive me in their houses. He makes it clear. His motivation is, if I butter these guys up enough or if I put them in a position where they owe me something, when I'm gone, they're going to put me in a place they're going to owe me something. 
Now, Jesus uses this, or I should say the master commends this guy not because he's happy that he got ripped off more than once. Obviously, the master is not saying, what a great guy. You know what? Good on you. You've, you've worked really hard to embezzle me. That's not his point. His point is he's thinking, you know what? You're, you were shrewd. You recognized that you were about to give account for your stewardship. And you recognized that that accountability was about to change the rest of your life. That your next stage of life was based on this accountability, and that's just about to happen. So, man, you, you used your head. You prepared for that next stage of life, knowing that accountability was about to happen. That's why the master commends his, his steward or ex-steward. So it's interesting because in doing this, then Jesus makes this comment in verse 8. He says, you know what? The sons of the world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Their generation, we might think in their time frame, but it's, it's more of the idea among their kind. So they're more shrewd with their own kind than we are with ours. So the, the idea here is that Jesus is saying, using this kind of fictional, unjust uh, steward as an example, he, he's saying, okay, this guy knew how to wheel and deal to make things better for him in the future. He knew that's the way it worked. The guys he dealt with knew that's the way it worked. And he did it well to make sure his future was set up. But how about the sons of light? Do we know how we are to interact with each other in a way that positively affects our future? So when Jesus goes to apply this, he says this in verse 9. He says, and I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. Now, if I was even more carnal than I, can, than I am, <laughs> it would be tempting to do what lots of people have done. Lots of churches around the world use this verse to say something like this. How you give determines where you live. If you give to God's work, you know that that's what's happening. Your, your place is going to be in heaven. So give to God's work here. Bless the Lord here. And what's going to happen? You're going to have assurance in heaven. Now, you think about this for a second. You guys are you're, you're clever people. Most of you people have at least a basic education, right? And you hear that and you go, that's just, not, that's just not on. But put yourself in a desperate situation where maybe your kids are sick and you have no way to deal with it. Or your spouse has run off and left you as a single parent. Or, or your, your life has fallen apart. You've been the victim of abuse and you don't know where else to turn. And you're going, okay, there, is there a God in heaven who cares for me? How do I connect with this God in heaven? And therefore you hear these words, oh, here's how you connect. You give to God's work. God will give back to you. Send in your faith pledge. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because this is a, is a difficult section to deal with and because it's difficult, it gets twisted to manipulate people who not only don't see God then meeting their need, but actually begin to put their faith in their faith or their faith in their giving. 
when our faith should only be in Jesus. So what does Jesus mean then? Well, first, let me be clear, okay? Jesus is using a really notorious character, the Son just steward, to, to give us a glorious truth. He's doing this on purpose. He's trying to shock these guys into paying attention. This is often why Jesus told parables, because we stop paying attention. I see it every Sunday. <laughs> but also, listen... He's wanting us to realize that stewardship, as far as Jesus is concerned, being a good steward, rightly using resources, is about building relationships. That's what it's about. It's not about building buildings. It's not about building salaries. It's not about building reputations. It's about building relationships. It's about connecting with people. And not just any relationships, it's about building eternal relationships. Look what he says. He says, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous men, and that when you fail, that could be translated when you die, they may receive you into an everlasting home. Now, Jesus isn't saying, hey, buy your way into heaven. The context bears this out. All of Jesus' teaching bear that out. But he is saying, listen, He's saying, listen, use the money that God gives you to build relationships. I mean, we see that practically spelled out in Scripture, right? Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, if you don't take care of your household, provide for them financially, you are worse than an infidel or an unbeliever. So this is why the first place that we want to bless financially is our own families. In that context, 1 Timothy 5, it's not wife and kids, though that's obviously included. It's also parents. The idea is, is that we take care of our own because God takes care of his own. But it's bigger than that. It's also about spending our money, using the money that God gives us so that as many people as possible go with us to heaven. That's what we desire. i got to say, I'm really challenged by this. I'm challenged by this because the truth is, what I tend to do, I'm, maybe you guys don't do this, but what I tend to do is I tend to think, okay, if I, if I tithe, if I systematically set apart the first certain percentage and say, okay, that belongs to God. I give that to the church. And then I give to a few really inspirational missions. Okay, I set those things apart right there. You know, and I buy someone an occasional meal. I'm a pretty generous guy. I'm really investing in the kingdom. And I've been challenged by this because really what I'm often trying to do is say, okay, okay, what do I need to give so that I can feel better about myself? As opposed to, Lord, Why do you want me to spend this money so that as many people as possible are coming into the kingdom? Now, there's some principles that he gives about stewardship and eternal relationships. If you look at verse 10, he says really clearly, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. He who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. In other words, here's what he's saying. It's how you use it, not how much you have. Sometimes we think that if somebody's wealthy, they're bad stewards. If somebody's poor, they're good stewards, or they have nothing to steward. No. If you're wealthy, you have a lot to steward. If you're poor, you have little to steward, but you're still accountable how you stewarded it. 
It's how you use it. He says in verse 11, Therefore, if you have not been faithful in unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you, commit to your trust the true riches? Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, listen, mammon, material possessions, resources, are not the true riches. Now, so it's amazing, I have to say, it's amazing how much we grew as a church when we came to this building. And, and I like to say it's because, you know, the, the preaching team, we're just really good. I like to say that. In my pride, I like to think that, oh, we got a great band. But you know the truth is, people come into a building and they go, this is a nice place. This is pretty good. I think I could stay here. Coffee's not bad either. It's amazing how we exalt material things as these are the ultimate riches. You know why I, what we really pray is the reason that we all want to stay in this fellowship? Because God is pouring out his love among us. That the way we treat each other, the way we're committed to, to love him, love others, love the truth, love the lost, that we do that in such a way that people come and go, surely God is in this place. That's what we desire it to be. Yeah, we're praying for a building, not to leave this place, but we're going to stay here as long as we can because this is a nice place and it's pretty reasonable. We pray for a building that we can do more ministry in. We have some money set aside for that. That's what we think is part of good stewardship. But the reality is this. Listen, what true riches are are those things that last forever. None of these chairs are going to heaven with us. Praise God, because they're pretty uncomfortable. That's why I'd rather preach than sit in it. That's why we give you lots of coffee so you stay awake. <laughs> this building's not going with us. You know the only thing we take to heaven with us? People. It's that which is eternal. Souls. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Now, so we recognize what's truly valuable. That's, that's important if we're going to see that stewardship's about eternal relationships. But also, verse 12, he says, And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? Now, I want you to think about this. Jesus is saying clearly that you can, there's a time when you are a steward of something that's another man's, and there's a time when you have something that's your own. He's, he's, he's putting these two things side by side. So when are you a steward? This side of heaven. You get that? This side of heaven you are a steward. Listen to this. Psalm chapter 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. If you are here today and you're going, I'm not really sure that I believe there's a God, you still belong to him. <laughs> you're still his. We want you to know that you're his. We want you to know that he's bought you at a price. We want you to know that he wants a relationship with you. Actually wants to adopt you into his family, which is pretty amazing. But even if you don't believe in him, he's still real. And he still owns us. He's still, we still belong to him. Everything belongs to him, which means everything we possess, every material possession, even every relationship is on loan from God. This helps me when... when um, I'm struggling to be a father or I'm struggling to be a husband. It helps me because I realize, okay, Lord, those relationships are temporary. 
I'm only going to be a husband to Sarah till death do us part. I'm only going to be a father to my children until, again, death do us part. But we're going to be brothers and sisters forever if we all know the Lord. So I want to invest in that. It's a stewardship. It's interesting. Because sometimes we forget this. It's, 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 it seems to for, we can easily start acting like things are ours. I caught myself several times saying that today. You know, my money, my things, my day off, my whatever it is. Everything's mine, 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 mine. First word my kids learned, mine, mine. And then when they looked, the first phrase was, I do it myself, me. That's how we are. No, it's the Lord's. It's the Lord's. Why does he say this? Why does, why does Jesus wanting us to be stewards of eternal, uh, see stewardship is about eternal relationships? Why is he using this really crazy parable to kind of shock us into seeing this? What's the purpose of it? It's love. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.5 when he's actually in the context dealing with people that want, are wanting to be teachers of God's law and are twisting God's law to manipulate people. He says, look, they're getting it wrong because now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. God wants to change our hearts. He, wants, he, wants, he doesn't want your wallet. He wants your heart. Because when he has your heart, it's his wallet. He wants our hearts. He wants us to be the kind of people that love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from a sincere faith. Don't you ever tire of loving people only by choice? Or tire of the fact that you just don't want to love that person so you walk away? Don't you ever get tired of that? Isn't the greatest thing in our lives when we actually connect with people and we love them this way pure heart good conscience sincere faith don't you get sick of not ever feeling or feel like you never feel like worshiping don't you want to love God this way a pure heart a good conscience sincere faith don't you realize this is why God commands us the things that he commands us he's wanting to change your hearts our obedience to his commands doesn't gain him anything but it gains us everything. This is what he's wanting to produce. This is why he says, listen, don't you know how generous I've been by sending my son? This is why I want you to be generous to one another. Not just to prove that you believe in me, but to change your heart. To bring you to a place where you can love from a pure heart. You can love with a good conscience. You can love with sincere faith. He wants to produce this in us. This is why this is here. This is why he calls us to this kind of stewardship. One that's concerned with eternal relationships. Now, a lot of times when we talk about stewardships, or if you've ever gone to like a seminar about Stewardship. Anybody here ever gone to like a church financial seminar where you talk about stewardship and budgeting? A few of you guys, yeah? A few. Wow, we need to do one of those. If not many people gone. They're really good. It's, it's important. It's important to understand. If you've not been taught how to budget, I think they might teach you that in schools, but they used to at least. If you've not been taught how to budget, it's important to know how to budget. It really is. It's a really good thing to know. 
But stewardship is more than budgeting. It's about having a heart for eternity. I'll tell you, this really, I'll tell you where this really challenged me. I'm uh, 48 years old. I know it's shocking. I know, you think I'm much younger, but I am, 48. I'm 48 years old, and this, this year I just started saving for retirement. And one of the reasons was I waxed spiritual and thought, you know, Jesus will come back before I retire, or, you know, God will provide, I don't have to worry about this. But then if I'm honest, I started to move towards retirement and sort of ask our trustees, can we please kind of move towards my retirement just so that I'm ready one day? Out of fear. I was afraid. Not so much for me, maybe more for Sarah or wanting to leave something for kids and grandkids if the Lord did tarry. Now, I, I don't think it's wrong that I'm, we have some money that we're saving towards retirement. It's not wrong. Hopefully, that'll mean we'll be less of a burden on our kids when we're older. But I'm still challenged by saying, okay, Lord, okay, that's fine that I'm doing that, but am I ready for eternity? Am I actually thinking about how does this affect relationships? How, how, how do I deal with the rest of the money that you've given to me as a stewardship? Am I using these things to build relationships? It's also hard for me because even though big financial decisions we make together as a board of trustees, the little day-to-day things, often it's me making that decision. And sometimes I think, man, is this the right thing? Is that the right thing? And I'm talking about with the church's money. It's hard. And I have to weigh this up. Okay, Lord, this is a, a good thing that would help us, but is, this, is it going to help us toward relationships in the gospel? There's no easy pattern. But there is a clear motive. God calls us that we be motivated by love. Now, so he gives this parable, and then in verse 14, in fact, I'm going to read verses 14 to 18, he starts saying things that you might be asking yourself, how on earth is this connected to this? Verse 14 says, Now, the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things, and they derided him. And Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, isn't it clear how that stuff all connects? No, not at all. It's really confusing. What are you talking about, Jesus? This is one of the times when I wonder if everyone who's sitting there is going, I have no idea what he's talking about. (laughs) Here's what I think he's doing. I believe what Jesus is doing here is he's beginning to challenge where their hearts are. In fact, it's interesting, the Pharisees, remember the Pharisees were those who, the Pharisees were those who um, were committed to, uh, were committed to the scriptures, they were committed to what God had said in his word, they were quite conservative in their view of scripture, uh, much like we would be. But the problem was, they, they were so into their sort of outward um, their outward conformity to these different rules and stuff, their hearts were never changed. 
And so they would often kind of justify to themselves, well, if I do this, it's okay that I'm allowed to do this. You know, you know what I'm talking about? You know that game we play with God sometimes where, okay, God, I won't do this, or God, I'll make sure I do these things, and then it'll be, you'll forgive me if I do these other things. I knew a man uh, years ago who was a real faithful evangelist, and he had a, a sort of a unique zeal. It just really seemed, I have to get out there. I have to tell people about Jesus. And he was always giving people tracts. He was always trying to talk to people about Jesus. And that was great. We thought that was great. But it was like, man, he just, what, what drives that guy? What, and I was jealous. I thought, I should have more of that. What drives that guy? Couldn't find out what was driving him was guilt because he had been visiting prostitutes for years. And he felt like if I do this, it makes up for that. And finally, was when it was exposed, obviously, unfortunately, much of the credibility that he had with those people was lost. Sometimes guilt drives us to do things. We make deals with God. Now, what Jesus is doing here is he's exposing the Pharisees who did sort of these kinds of things. I can, I can justify keeping lots of my money for me. In fact, the Pharisees were, were one of the things they were guilty of. Jesus, expo- oops, Jesus exposed them. Oh, the battery fell out. I lost my timing. Sorry, guys. That'll make really good video. Me falling down and picking that up. So Jesus actually, he actually confronted the Pharisees because he said, you know, you take the traditions of men and you, you make them in such a way that they actually undermine the truth of Scripture. And the example he used had to do with money. He says, you will take money and you'll say, this is Corbin, this is a gift from God. It's set aside for God's purposes. It cannot be used anything for God's purposes. And say, sorry, all my money set aside for God's purposes, so sorry, mom and dad, I can't help you in your old age. And Jesus says, what about honor your mother and father? He says, you take your traditions and you usurp the truth of God that you say you uphold. Now, here, here, here's, the, here's the reality. The last section in, in, in chapter 16 connects, especially the last parable, connects to the first section, the first parable, through verse 13, where Jesus says uh, one of his favorite sayings. I think he said this several times throughout the New Testament. He says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus is saying, look, both these things connect. They're all about who you're going to serve. And so when the Pharisees hear this, they're going, whatever, that's saying again. And the reason they're, they're saying this is because they were lovers of money. They loved their money. They saw it as their money. They wanted to hold on to their money. Now, now here's the thing you have to understand, okay? Jesus is saying, listen, you justify yourselves before men. In other words, you tell each other, no, you're doing fine, you're doing great. Yeah, you're good with the money. You're fine. You're great. And they get each other's approval about these kinds of things. And Jesus says, plainly, listen, but what's highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Do you know what an abomination is? You know what that big word means? It means something that makes God sick. Like when Jesus says, if you're either hot nor cold, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. He, he's saying, listen, you, you, you're trying to please men. You're trying to justify one another. 
but you should be seeking to please God. You see, money isn't just, listen, money isn't just a tool to build relationships. Money is also a test of our worship. Who are you trying to please? Maybe we should say, who are you trying to impress? Isn't sometimes our motivation to have a nicer car, a nicer house, nicer clothes, nicer holidays? Isn't often that a desire to impress people or please ourselves? Nothing wrong with any of those things mentioned. None of those things are sinful by themselves at all. But who are we seeking to please? Interesting, when it says lovers of money, that phrase is actually one word in the Greek. It's only used two places in all the New Testament. Here and in 2 Timothy 3, 2, where it says, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. Boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. We'll talk about what we mean by the last days next week. But Paul's not saying these things never existed until the last days. He's saying in the last days, these will characterize humanity. This will be how people are normally. Now this is not also, listen, Jesus saying you have to, you don't really love me unless you give away all your money because listen you can give away all your money and not love God that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 he says and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and though I give my body to be burned and have not love it profits me nothing no he's talking about having a heart that says I want to please God can I ask you a very serious question don't, don't answer out loud just answer in your own heart do you ever pray about your finances? I don't mean, God, I don't have enough money, give me more. That's not a bad thing to pray, but is that the only prayer you've ever prayed about finances? Do you ever say, God, what do you want me to do with this money that's come in? What do you want me to do with this increase? Do you ever pray about that? God, God, do you want me to live in this house? I'm reading a book right now called Counterculture by an American guy named David Platt. It's a really good book. It's a very challenging book. And one of the things he's talking about was how he and his wife wrestled for years about the standard of living because where they are, in, in, where they happen to be in America is a very affluent area. The church is very affluent. Even if they moved to the very outskirts of where those, the, the church would be, they'd still be in an affluent area. And they thought, what do we do? And they wrestled. And the truth was, they, 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 it was kind of funny. They made a list. He said, okay, honey, you, you write a list of what you think you really need to have in a house, and I'll write a list of what I need. And so she writes first, I want a back, uh, some sort of a, an enclosed garden so the kids can play safely. He writes, water. I just want water. Running water. And he kind of realized, okay, this is probably not going to work. We need to pray into this a bit more. And it took him a long time, it took him years to wrestle through what it means to sort of live at a lower means so they could be ready to give to the kingdom. And that's going to look different for us all, but the truth is, the only way we know that is to say, God, what would you have me do? I am not trying to make any of you guys feel bad about the houses you live in. I live in a nice house. I don't own it, but I live in it. I hope to own a house again someday. I'm not saying any of those things are bad or wrong. What I'm saying is, are you saying God, are you saying to God, what would you do? How, are you pleased with how 
we use the money you've given us. Don't let it stop at just committing to give to your church. It's a good thing to do, but don't let it stop there. Don't let it be about treating God as another bill that you pay. Let him be the Lord over all your finances. Say, God, you're the generous God who gave me this stuff. What do you want me to do with it? Interesting, he's on to say in verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John, and since that time the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone has pressed into it. Then he talks about the law not being able to fail. Then he talks about, you know, divorce and marriage. And you think, what has that got to do with these things? What Jesus is talking about here, I believe, is he's, he's, not, he's kind of moving from asking the question, who are you seeking to please, to asking the question, what authority are you submitting to? Because all these things have to do with authority. When he talks about John, he's talking about John the Baptist, in case you didn't realize this. And remember, John the Baptist was a guy that everyone thought he's a prophet from God. In fact, he was so seen as a prophet, the Pharisees were afraid to say he wasn't a prophet, even though they didn't like what he had to say. And so Jesus is saying, okay, the authority of John. He spoke with the, the prophetic authority. Then in verse 17, when he talks about the law, he's talking about the authority of the law, the, the, the fact that the scriptures have a permanent authority. Jesus says, I didn't come to tear them down, but to fulfill them. And then here in verse 18, when he talks about marriage and divorce, this is what he's doing. Marriage and divorce was the thing that was most debated among believer, believing Jews of that day. And Jesus isn't saying, I take this side or I take that side. He's saying, I declare what's supposed to be. He's exercising, he's demonstrating his messianic authority. All these things are about, I believe, Jesus challenging his audience to say, okay, well, whose authority that, that are you submitting to? Remember, we're talking about money is a test of our worship, and that has to do with whose authority. Does God have a right to say, sell this? You know, we... Uh, we owned a home in California, and we sold that home to move here and to plant churches. And, you know, in hindsight, we look back and think, why did we do that sometimes? Because the truth was, if we would have waited one more year, we could have made another $70,000 on our home. That's a lot of money. But we knew God's, we felt God's timing was to go then. We felt like God told us not to keep the house, but to sell the house. And then we moved here, not having a clue of how crazy expensive it was to live in London. If you ever lived in London, it's a horribly expensive place to live, especially when you have five little kids. And we saw the money that we had, we had made off the house go, so by the time we actually moved here to Planet Church, there was nothing left. And sometimes I think, man, Lord, why did you do that? <laughs> I could have bought a house here. I could have mowed my own lawn instead of somebody else's. But you know the reality is? God told us to do this. We knew. We prayed through these things. We, didn't, we weren't flipping. We got advice. We thought through the financial implications. We weren't sure about some things, but some things we were sure about. And we felt like, no, if we keep this house, we'll be tempted to move back to California. No, we're selling it now. We're making a profit. God's provided through this. This is what, what, what happens. See, the issue isn't about what's just the wisest thing to do financially, though that should be considered. The issue is, am I obeying God? Am I doing what he wants me to do? Now, quickly, lastly, he gives this other parable. And I'm gonna read through this parable. And this is a, a parable that I believe is, is Jesus just wanting to make one main point. One main point, but there'll be a, a few things that we pull out of it. 
I believe the main point he wants to do is he's now moving from asking the question, and he was asking, who are you seeking to please? Then he asked, what authority are you submitting to? Now I believe he's asking, how do you want to spend eternity? The most serious of questions. Listen to the parable. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, so that so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. Now, understand what's going on here. Jesus is using, in this parable, he's, he's using imagery that every Jewish person would have gotten. And so by doing so, he's confirming some of the understanding that the Jews had about the afterlife. But he's also challenging some of the understanding that the Jews had about the afterlife. So the fact that they would go to Abraham's bosom, this place of to be in the bosom of something is to have favor with that one. Abraham being the father of all that have faith, so to be in Abraham's bosom would be to be in that place of close favor with God and his people. So what's tricky to them is they would have seen, well, if someone's rich, they have God's blessing on them. So you would think if someone believes and is rich, they would be in Abraham's bosom. But someone who's a beggar, someone who's poor, someone who has the unclean animals licking their sores, no, that, that guy wouldn't be in Abraham's bosom. But he's also saying this. This is the main thing I think he's wanting to say. Rich or poor, everybody dies. Did you realize that? It's a sad reality, isn't it? You know, we're going to celebrate Eileen's death here in a, in a couple of weeks. And you know what we're not going to do? We're not going to get all our possessions and bury them with her. You know why? She didn't need them. She's not there anymore anywhere. She's with the Lord. But isn't it amazing that we act like we gather stuff as if we're going to keep it forever? No, rich or die, everyone, rich or poor, everyone dies. He goes on to say, verse 23, and being in torments in Hades, speaking of the rich man, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Now please keep in mind, this is Jesus giving this parable. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, notice there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. So what's he confirming? He's confirming the reality that the afterlife, listen, is a fixed Conscious reality. That when you die, then comes the judgment, according to Hebrews 9.22. And at that judgment, you either stay with God who judges, or you're separated with God. And whether you're with God or you're away from God, you are conscious of what's going on. This is what the scripture teaches. This is what Jesus is affirming 
Now this is important. It's important because Jesus talked about these things before. And before I read the rest of the parable, let me just kind of point out a couple of verses. In John chapter 5, here's what Jesus says. Listen, he says, Verily, uh, Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and, and, and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. A lot of deep theology there. In a nutshell, here's what Jesus is saying. I'm the judge. What I say goes. And if I say you're forgiven, you're forgiven. And if you believe in me, that I died for your sins, that I've risen from the dead, I'm the judge. I declare you innocent. And he's also saying, if he rejects what I've done so that you could be forgiven, you remain in your sins and I will judge your behavior not against everyone around you but against my behavior. Now also Jesus says this in John chapter 5. He says, do not be amazed at this for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will, will rise to live and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Jesus is saying there's a resurrection. He's proved that's gonna happen because he rose from the dead. He said there's a resurrection that comes from me rising people from the dead and me judging them. This is sobering stuff, isn't it? It's, you know, you have to listen to it for maybe 45 minutes or an hour. I've got to wrestle with this for eight or 10 hours a week. Sobering stuff. That Jesus doesn't want us to miss. And he goes on to say, finishing the parable, verse 27. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Hey, let them listen to what the scripture says. But he says, no, Father Abraham, this is, remember, this is, this is the rich man, the tormented rich man says, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them uh, from the dead, then they will repent. But Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Now, remember, the, don't, don't miss the whole context of this chapter. We're talking about how money intersects with relationships. And we've already seen God intends money to be a, a tool to build relationships, specifically eternal relationships. But also that money is a test of our worship. Jesus here is being clear. He's saying, listen, you Jews are right to think there's an afterlife, but you're wrong if you think that your blessing now proves that you're going to make it in the afterlife. You're wrong in that you think you're suffering now means you might not make it in the afterlife. 
He's wanting them to realize that the two are not necessarily connected that way. But here is what is connected. What we do with the money that God gives us. Where was the rich man? In his house, enjoying his life, faring sumptuously every day. Now before you think, yeah, rich people, they're so bad, aren't they? Don't forget, every single one of you, even if all your income is just only being on the dole, you are richer than the vast majority of people on this planet. We are all rich. The rich man fared sumptuously. He ate well every day, and the beggar at his door, he ignored. He completely ignored. There's something here that I think you really need to see. See, we read this and we think, yeah, the, the rich man, that's Jesus talking about the Jews. Got it. Lazarus, that's Jesus talking about the poor. Got it. Wait a second. It's definitely talking about the poor. But I want you to think about Lazarus. He's named. His name means God is my help. Very common Jewish name, Lazarus. Eleazar, I think it was what it would be in Hebrew. God is my help. What happens to Lazarus? He's poor. Jesus said, I have nowhere to lay my head. Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. Son of man has no way, no place to lay his head. He, even at the height of his ministry, was poor. Lazarus suffered among the unclean. Dogs came and licked his sores. Jesus suffered between two thieves, the unclean. Lazarus dies in a scandalous and distasteful way. Jesus dies in a scandalous and tasteless way. Lazarus is given the place of honor at Abraham's bosom. Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the Father. In a few weeks, we're going to look at Matthew 25, where Jesus says, if you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. You see, this is about how we relate to God. All right, God, you know what? It is all your money. I get that. I get that. And I know I need to be organized with my budgeting, and I know I need to be wise and preferable how I give and, go, and, and Jesus wants to say okay that's great that's good but do you see me and the needy people all around you do you know when, when Paul wants to encourage the Corinthian church to be generous to other churches you know what he says to him he says don't you realize Jesus who was rich became poor for your sakes that you might become rich in him so what do we do he calls us to the same kind of life. Now, now it is hard. I, I am not trying to say you can make this much money and no more. I'm not going there. I'm not saying you can live in this big a house and no more. You can have this many cars and no more. You can have this kind of holiday and no more. I'm not saying the endless thing. That's between you and God. But I am saying it's between you and God. And you need to ask God, God, what do you want me to do? And just because you don't have money to go on a holiday doesn't mean you're a good steward of your money. 
See, God wants our hearts. He wants us to worship Him who freely gives us all things, who richly gives us all things to enjoy. He wants us to worship Him. And sometimes, guys, for us who are rich, and we are rich in the West, the only way we're going to worship Him is to let it go, to give it away, to say, Lord, who, who, who should I help with this? It's hard. I have a bunch of verses I was going to read to you, but can we skip down to Romans chapter 8? It's the, probably the last slide or second to last slide. Just for the sake of time. This is what Paul says about us as believers. He says, and since we are his children, we are his heirs. So when I, if the Lord tarries and I pass on and there's anything in my possession that goes to Sarah when, uh, I'm assuming I'm gonna die first because she's healthier than me. Um, if she passes on, it goes to our children. It doesn't go to a random stranger. Since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. For if we are to share, but if we are to share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. And we know that God causes everything to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes for them. Guys, do you understand that God calls us to be the kind of people who show generosity to one another that Jesus showed to us, even to the point of suffering? And I have to say, this is where I'm most challenged. Because 100 years ago, that would be about taking care of the poor in our immediate culture. I'm not saying there's still not a need for that, but if we're, I think if we're, I don't think it's unfair to say that the government at least tries to make an attempt to go that way. I'm not saying they do a good job or don't do a good job. I'm not politicizing this. I'm just saying that that's probably not the, the application that's so challenging, is it? You know, we pay our taxes and we help our taxes help the poor. But what about the fact that we can know of every single hurting brother and sister in Christ in the world now? And we have the means to help these people. What are we doing? And I, I worry for us. I worry that, that we as the Western church are going to face God one day and he's going to go, wow, I'm glad you enjoyed that building while your brothers and sisters were being decapitated and you did nothing. Hey, I had another really nice bring-in share. Good casseroles. Well, that missionary family doesn't know how they're going to buy their kids clothes that fit. Hey, so good you got that promotion. You're doing well. When there are still thousands, thousands of languages that don't have the Bible in their language. Millions of people still unreached with the gospel. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty for guilt's sake. I'm not trying to make myself feel guilty for guilt's sake. I'm saying, are we gonna let God challenge us with this? 
Is Jesus our Lord? Do we want to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? I want to do what you want me to do. Not to earn something from you, but because you've already given me all things. Not to sort of, I have to give back because if not, I'll just feel guilty. Not to appease my own guilt, but to demonstrate your grace. Are we willing to think about this? I know I said this is about money and relationships, but really, let's be honest, this is about all our resources and relationships. It's about our time. It's about our treasure. It's about our talents. See, money is a test of who we worship. Are we passing or failing? 